And I still want to see that server. You know, the FBI has never gotten that server. That's a big part of this whole thing. Why did they give it to a Ukrainian company? Are Why? you sure? That, of course, is President Donald Trump calling into Fox and Friends this morning, airing his grievances. This is old school, man. And by the way, expect more of this as we head into the 2020 election. But Bears pointing out that CrowdStrike is not a Ukrainian company based here in the Bay Area, traded on uh, American stock exchanges founded by a ex-USSR person, but he, he came to America when he was like a kid. So, I don't know. I mean, look, uh, whether or not the substance of, of what he is saying is is true doesn't matter because Donald Trump really doesn't care. He cares that you're talking about him because he went on Fox and Friends. Welcome to PX3. This is uh, your old pal Justin Robert Young. And we got some good stuff here for you. A look back into history. Oh, it's liberal Hollywood. Look at all these movie stars going around telling us how to live while they're on Molly and screwing each other. You know, with their open marriages. That's what we've always heard. And it's not untrue. But also... It was not always like that. Indeed, we will have a retrospective into the past of how Hollywood's relationship with the uh, political establishment has evolved. A lot of old names. If you're a history person, this is going to be a great interview for you. We're also going to go through the must-have states. We are about to get into some of the the, the real nitty-gritty of the primary process. But I'm going to go through the first four states and which states each candidate needs to win. That's coming up. But first, let's talk about impeachment. We are done with the hearings. The hearings have been heard. That's that. So now the real question is, what comes next? You would assume that we are going to get articles of impeachment. We are going to have them voted on and they are going to pass because the Democrats need but a simple majority to do so. The question now becomes, and it seems more indicative that this is the case, can they attract any Republicans to cross the aisle? And that answer seems to be no. The strongest indication of that is that the most likely Republican to cross the aisle and do it was Texan Will Heard. On this side of Justin Amash, who left the Republican Party to become an independent in a a fiery Scarface from half-baked, F you, F you, F you, you're cool, I'm out. Will Heard is not running for re-election. He's a moderate. All of his questioning on the Intelligence Committee uh, of the witnesses were reasonable and nonpartisan, at least by all accounts. And certainly compared to, you know, the the Adam Schiff's on one side and the Jim Jordan's on the other. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. But this was what Will Hurd said as hearings wound down yesterday. An impeachable offense should be compelling, 
overwhelmingly clear and unambiguous, and it's not something to be rushed or taken lightly. I have not heard evidence proving the president committed bribery or extortion. And although he did say that President Trump saying that he wanted Zelensky to do him a favor was inappropriate, misguided foreign policy, he also criticized Adam Schiff. He said that this was a very partisan process and that he wanted to hear from Rudy Giuliani and Hunter Biden, as well as the whistleblower, in private at least. So the point is this. We are now out of bullets when it comes to Ukraine for the Democrats. And we'll get back to what else they might bring up. But if you can't get a single Republican, then the question becomes, what are we doing? If in the House you can't get a single Republican, where there are more Republicans to pick off, and you can't get a single one, then you're literally just going to send this to the Senate so it can be smothered. Now, you will successfully impeach the president if the theory is that you are going to force all these Republicans to be on the record, then that's fine. But it doesn't seem like, at least to them, they feel like there's a political cost. That might be foolhardy. Maybe they are indeed lemmings falling off the side of the cliff. But for right now, it certainly looks like a loser. And here's something that would not give me a lot of confidence if I were a Democrat pushing for impeachment. You want to make sure that this is the case that you can make. You want clarity on the fact that Ukraine is the reason why we are impeaching and pushing to remove a sitting president of the United States. Again, something that has never happened in the history of the country. We are in unprecedented territory if this is to happen. So what does it say when now... It looks like by the time Thanksgiving is wrapped, we are going to get more impeachment hearings. But this time, it's going to be about Robert Mueller. Ukraine, Mueller, Mueller, Ukraine, Ukraine, Mueller, Mueller, Ukraine, Ukraine, Mueller, Mueller, Ukraine. At least that seems to be the new strategy For the Democrats, as we are going to hear more testimony related to the Mueller investigation, this centered around whether or not Donald Trump gave false testimony to Mueller. It is going to rely on evidence that was uh, submitted during the Roger Stone trial that led to his convictions, which is this. Uh, Apparently... Rick Gates, while uh, testifying in the Stone trial, said that he was in a car with then-candidate Trump uh, when the latter was engaged in a phone call with Roger Stone about the upcoming WikiLeaks disclosures. Federal Prosecutor Aaron Zelinsky, no relation to the president of Ukraine, uh, asked Gates what happened after Trump got off the line with Stone. Gates replied he indicated that more information would be coming. House investigators will now want testimony from Gates 
because of Trump's written testimony. By the way, this is all from the Law and Crime blog. Here is what Donald Trump wrote to Robert Mueller. I spoke by telephone with Roger Stone from time to time during the campaign. I have no recollection of the specifics of any conversations I had with Mr. Stone between June 1st, 2016 and November 8th, 2016. I do not recall discussing WikiLeaks with him. I do not recall being aware of Mr. Stone having discussed WikiLeaks with individuals associated with my campaign, although I was aware that WikiLeaks was the subject of media reporting and campaign-related discussion at the time. This has become an issue because House Democrats are pushing for an expedited ruling on Don McGahn. McGahn? McGahn. He was a Trump lawyer, and the White House has heretofore been blocking him from testifying. The Democrats want him to testify and are pushing for a ruling, an expedited ruling from the courts to see whether or not it is legal for the White House to block him. If they are able to loose McGon, then they are going to make him testify in front of the House. But even then, we so we're going to push on an I do not recall. That's what we're going to push on. Because I just watched a bunch of hearings where a lot of people didn't recall stuff, and then they recalled stuff. So let's say you prove... Trump dead to rights on this. He didn't say, I absolutely had no conversations with WikiLeaks. He says, I I didn't recall having a conversation with WikiLeaks. So then you can say, oh, I do. I recall it. You're still going to push for impeachment then? I don't know. It it just seems like at a certain point, you got to play the hand you're dealt. And if the Democrats are dead set on impeachment, and look, they have the backing of 30 to 40% of the country conservatively, probably more. Then you just got to go. Just push on it. I don't see the point of waiting. Uh, and, and to add Mueller this late in the game, I, I just, you know, there's always going to be something that the Democrats can use to punish Trump. Which brings me to this counterintuitive thought. Would it be foolhardy or galaxy brain to push for censure? Now, wait, 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 wait. Before I'm ducking all the the, the, the rotten produce that's being thrown at me right now by all of the, 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 the liberal listeners that we have, which is the large majority of this podcast, I'm not saying... Censure because it's less of an issue. I'm saying censure for this strategic reason. You have an opportunity to end this process on a win or on a loss. Think about it like that. You can end it on a win. Donald Trump is censured. Only one president in history has had that happen before. You still put everybody on the record, but you don't send it to the Senate. You don't make five of your 2020 candidates leave Iowa to come be part of something that will be a loss. You deny Donald Trump the ability to say that he is cleared of all charges, acquitted by the Senate. 
which is not what happens, but he will say that. You deny him that. He gets the scarlet letter. Not the I, but the C. It's a deliberate de-escalation. You're going to pay a cost. Rashida Tlaib was not saying we're going to censure the MRFer. But it is a win. And a win in this environment means something. Also, it'll never happen. <laughs> They're going to impeach him. <laughs> like it's it's it is written in the stars. Uh, uh it is it is done, finished, Fanato. Impeachment is happening. Uh, and and now the question is exactly how many more flavors of impeachment they want to staple on to the Ukraine thing. But uh, sure as the sun shall rise, Donald Trump will be impeached. Politics! All right, gang, I am gearing up to hit the road for the primaries next year. And if that's going to happen, I need your help. Head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Uh, that is where you can, of course, sign up for our Patreon. You can get bonus episodes of this very podcast uh, for uh, the $3 level. Uh, Folks at the $10 level, the real big spenders, you guys got a bonus treat this week. So if you are at the $10 level, go check Patreon. And also, I've gotten some really, 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 really generous one-time donations from from people. Uh, uh, Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, If you want to do that, if if Patreon isn't your bag, you can just give me money directly. PayPal.me slash Justin R. Young. PayPal.me slash Justin R. Young. That being said, I'm super excited for this. We're doing Iowa, Nevada, California, and Florida. And I'll tell you what, if you guys, you know, keep, uh, uh, there's been a huge surge on the Patreon. Thank you guys for that. If uh, uh, we keep going up, then I don't know. Maybe maybe I add New Hampshire and South Carolina. <laughs> maybe I'll just literally be a part of the traveling press at that point. Uh, here's the other thing that I want from you guys. Hit me up on Twitter, at Justin R. Young. Email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com, with what you want from this coverage. I'm serious. I'm your employee. So tell me what kind of coverage you want. Do you want me to go uh, interview people at the headquarters? Do you want me to go to the rallies? Do you just want me to hang out in the bars uh, uh, with all the other press so we can, you know, get some off-the-record gossip? Let me know. What kind of stuff do you want? More streams, more podcasts, YouTube videos, uh, uh, whatever. Uh, uh, Let me know. I am open to any and all suggestions because... You guys are the ones putting me on the road. TakePoliticsSeriously.com and PayPal.me slash Justin R. Young. And of course, you can always support me by heading on over to my mailing list. Free political newsletter, freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Five emails a week, five stories a day, and it's mostly gifts. In fact, somebody compared me to the Drudge Report today. It's like, oh, I love the political newsletter because it's like the Drudge Report. Uh, to which I would ha- I would say, number one, there's there's no House of Filth. I've yet to do a House of Filth link on the free political newsletter. And I write way more than Matthew. Matthew barely writes. Headlines, yes. 
I write actual copy for like three of the stories out of the five. <laughs> so I write much more, much more than Matthew does. Freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Politics! Hollywood and politics. That is what we are going to talk about. My guest today is Catherine Brownell. She is an associate professor of history at Purdue University and the author of Showbiz Politics, Hollywood and American Political Life. You can follow her on Twitter at Catherine Brownell. That is Catherine with a Y, B-R-O-W-N-E-L-L. I would like to welcome Catherine to the show. Hi, Catherine. Hi, thank you so much for having me. All right. Now, this is this is a, a, a particular uh, uh, point of interest for me because I've been doing a lot of research recently into the 1960 election and the relationship between John F. Kennedy and Frank Sinatra. The Democratic mm-hmm. National Convention happens in L.A. this that that year. So uh, I am I'm very, very interested in the connection between Hollywood and uh, politics in general. So let, let's see if uh, uh, we can start at the beginning here. W- where does the any kind of formal connection between uh, Hollywood and or the movie industry or the showbiz industry in general begin to find connective tissue with politicians? Well, it really starts in the 1920s when Hollywood becomes this global industry. And they become a very powerful entertainment venue. And politicians recognize that moviegoers are voters. And, and entertainers and studio executives recognize that they need to gain economic favor, or they need to gain political favor for economic interests. And so there's a reason that both sides want to come together. Uh, entertainers want, again, that social prestige, uh, political power, uh, because it can really pad their pocketbooks, where politicians see that this is a, a, a new industry that has shown an enormous potential to connect with new demographics of the public, and that they can really tap into this for political benefit. Now, at that point, at, at the point of origination... Is there any political leaning of Hollywood as a town? Well, actually, in the 1920s, it's the Republican Party that capitalizes on the, the political interests of, of Hollywood. Uh, Herbert Hoover actually uh, invites Louis B. Mayer to spend the evening in the Lincoln bedroom following the 1928 election because Louis B. Mayer was very influential in delivering California uh, and uh, in, in teaching, the, to teaching Herbert Hoover how to use radio to connect to new demographics uh, during that campaign. And so he, he, he tries to bring in the power of entertainment uh, to that election for Herbert Hoover. It's really interesting, though, that that Hoover thinks that, yes, that's great that he can help me win California and, you know, the motion picture industry uh, is, is a really important component of, uh, of California politics. But Hoover really kind of dismisses the power of motion pictures. Uh, he actually sees it as degrading to the political process. And so 
he recognizes that, yes, Mayor can uh, be someone who's influential, but he's not really a priority for Hoover or for the National Republican Party. And so that's part of the, the challenge that the entertainers, whether they're studio executives or actors or producers, directors, writers, as they're trying to enter the political arena, they're frequently dismissed as you know, just entertainers. Uh, and so that's part of the reason that they actually get involved in politics, to show that they actually have something of value at the national level. So initially, the, the, the spark is economic. It's the studio bosses that want to make sure that Absolutely. they have a seat at the table. At what point do the performers start to take an outsized role? Is, is, there, is there kind of a, a, a pioneer for this? Well, performers start to become more politically involved during the 1930s. Um, and there are two reasons for this. One is the New Deal. Uh, many of them have uh, a, an interest in some of the politics that FDR is bringing to the table. Uh, and also, they really like FDR as a person. Uh, and, they, uh, and many celebrities cultivate a personal relationship with Roosevelt. Uh, they actually do this initially through philanthropic events. Uh, they, they come each year to the Capitol and help FDR celebrate his birthday during these birthday balls. And all of the proceeds of that um, actually goes to benefit uh, infant, uh, research for infantile paralysis and uh, in what becomes ultimately known as the March of Dimes. And so there's this personal relationship uh, that develops between many celebrities and uh, and, and, um, and Franklin Roosevelt. But more broadly, a lot of actors in the 1930s are becoming more politically savvy because they're really passionate about what's going on at the international scene. They become involved in a lot of anti-fascist organizations. They see the danger of, of fascism and Adolf Hitler in Germany, and they want to encourage this idea of intervention. They, they see that this is an important issue that Americans should be aware of and perhaps be thinking about how they can become involved in. Now, obviously, you mentioned Hollywood wants to get closer to D.C. They want to get closer to the politicians, but... It's a be careful what you wish for situation as the 40s and 50s mm -hmm. roll around with the communism scare, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and, and that's the tension is that there is this opportunity, again, for economic uh, advancement uh, to get favorable tax policies, to ward off antitrust investigations. That's what's really driving the studio executives. Uh, but for actors, uh, a lot of the, the motivation is that they might be passionate about a certain issue. But again, that social prestige, you know, getting to know the president is something that uh, that matters to them as an individual. It shows that, again, they're more than just an entertainer. But that politics can come back to bite them. Uh, and the 1944 is a, uh, election is a great example of how many celebrities become so involved in Roosevelt's reelection campaign and they are so passionate and they are excited because they, they see it as the first national election in which they are taken seriously. Yeah. But these same entertainers are at the, the crux of the investigation about motion pictures uh, as, you know, a communist tool because they are advocating for progressive politics in the 1944 election. And, and this becomes uh, when all of a sudden uh, 
FDR passes away and their friend in the White House isn't there, what what was so exciting in 1944 becomes a political liability. Now, uh, who are some of the names that really go all out for FDR in that election? Who who, who are the celebrities that, that lay it on the line? Humphrey Bogart is a big advocate for FDR in 1944. He does a lot of radio spots, uh, really goes around campaigning. Um, Frank Sinatra actually uh, becomes a, a figure in the 1944 campaign. Uh, Judy Garland uh, is uh, there's this really great election eve broadcast uh, that brings in all of these different voices. And uh, and they're all saying, you know, we are representative of the voice of the people and we are coming together to tell you to vote for Roosevelt tomorrow. And that's what these celebrities are trying to say, uh, that they are the voice of the people, that they represent popular opinion uh, and, and they represent the public in a way that other politicians might not necessarily do at that time. They don't represent a particular interest group like labor uh, but they can, as as represent as celebrities, they they are calling attention to the fact that people like them, and um, and that therefore they have this authority because of this celebrity. And I think it's it's also important to point out here for anybody listening that at at this point in history, the average American's relationship to politics is far different than it is now, where we are. You know, we have channels dedicated to it. We have constant feeds of incremental information at at that point and correct me if i'm wrong here the uh, celebrity your favorite actor coming out and saying i have a political opinion and here's what it is and i think that you should share it is much more a connection to the common man than the way we might think of it now where we have entire industries built around celebrities and they are their own kind of siloed part of our culture Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then that's actually the, the power of celebrity at this particular moment, uh, because they can go, uh, they can have a short, um, uh, a radio short that draws on the, the, the persona that a film goer just saw that day. And people went to the film or to the theaters, you know, three or four times a week. Uh, they're getting their news from theaters as well. And so if they see celebrities in these, these newsreels, uh, you know, celebrating the birthday party of the president, all of a sudden, all of the, 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 that world is, is really connecting. And, and that means something when Betty Davis as in 1944 that she's going to pull the lever over Franklin Delano Roosevelt's name, all of a sudden it connects to the, the moviegoer in a really profound way. Um, after all, that's how they're getting all of their information about what goods to buy. Uh, you know, celebrities are selling goods at the same time. Uh, and then they also start selling pol- or politicians as well. Now, Tell me whether or not this is something that is kind of a media creation or if it was significant. The, the relationship between Frank Sinatra and John F. Kennedy leading up to mm-hmm. the two, uh, the uh, 1960 election. Obviously, Frank Sinatra creates his theme song. He is very visible throughout the campaign and does a lot of celebrity wrangling during the convention. Uh, is that something that is a very close, uh, unique relationship between celebrity and candidate? Or is that something that we've kind of invented as the decades have gone by and they've both, you know, cemented themselves as very famous people? 
Mm -hmm. It's a great question. And the 1960 election, I argue, is a very important and transformative moment in the relationship between Hollywood and and Washington because in part because of the not just because of the relationship between Sinatra and Kennedy, but because of the relationship between Kennedy and Hollywood more broadly. And Sinatra is part of that. But I think what's really key to understand is that uh, John Kennedy's father, Joseph Kennedy, was a studio executive in the 1920s. Uh, he understood Hollywood. And, you know, the, the, he moved back to Boston, uh, but he remains very connected to the industry. He subscribes to all of the trade magazines and is constantly reading about what's happening. John Kennedy, um, when he's younger, he travels to Southern California. He's familiar with the studio system uh, and, and, and the stars uh, that, that went in and out of all of the studios. And so he understands how it works. And he uses this to his advantage during the 1960 election because John Kennedy at this time is kind of known at the national scene um, as a Massachusetts senator, but he's not one of the most prominent or well-known Democrats. In fact, the most powerful Democrat at this time is Lyndon Johnson. And many people thought that if Lyndon Johnson wanted the presidential nomination in 1960, it would be Lyndon Johnson's for the taking. So John Kennedy, in order to try to stake a claim for that nomination, he has to go outside of the party. He can't wheel and deal inside the Democratic Party. Uh, that's what Johnson, that was his strength. But Kennedy could go outside. And to do that, he had to create this public persona and show that he had a different type of authority. And so he, he turns himself into a celebrity creating that same authority that he can represent the people in a way that, you know, Betty Davis uh, said that she could earlier on. And so, uh, so it's that turning to the tools of celebrity to transform himself into a celebrity, to gain political power and to assert his political legitimacy. That's what's innovative in the 1960 election. So at that point, JFK sets the mold, right? That this is the, the thing you need to do. You have to have this direct connection with the people. By that point, you you he sets the template for running in primaries. You have to press the flesh mm -hmm. a lot more. You have to have a public persona. Uh, where do we go from here? Because I feel like po post-1960, we begin to enter something that resembles more our modern age of Hollywood and, and politics. It, it seems like, there are similar relationships in a way that pre-1960, it, it might seem a little foreign. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. And one of the things that changes post-1960 is, you know, political values start to change. What people see as driving success starts to change. And, and this is where interpretation about what happened in 1960 becomes really key. And if you actually look at coverage of Kennedy in the 1960 election and this relationship that he has with Hollywood, it's really controversial. Uh, it invokes as much criticism as it does praise um, and perhaps support. It could have actually even been a liability for him in the 1960 election because it really fit into this narrative that he 
was all about style and not about substance. Um, and that's something that Richard Nixon really hammers home in his criticisms of John Kennedy during that campaign. Um, and in fact, celebrity, you know, this celebrity persona of Kennedy, uh, even in the early days of his administration, uh, becomes a criticism. Uh, and he actually distances himself from Frank, Frank Sinatra uh, by 1962 uh, because of this. Uh, however, as people are starting to think about television, as they're starting to grapple with TV's growing authority and presence in American culture more broadly, they're trying to think, what did Kennedy do that was successful in 1960? And overwhelmingly, a narrative develops that, oh, it's his showbiz style. It's his use of TV. That's why he won the 1960 election. And no one believed that narrative more than Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon blamed his loss in 1960, not just on the TV debates, but on television more broadly. Uh, and he thought that it was Kennedy's glitz and glamour that won him the presidency. And so as he's grappling with how to revamp his campaign in, uh, in the 1960s and make his comeback to the national scene, he's thinking, I have to follow in the footsteps of Kennedy. He's also studying Ronald Reagan. Uh, so Ronald Reagan, at the same time, is starting to gain momentum um, in the Republican Party. Uh, and people overwhelmingly are saying, uh, you know, Republican figures are studying what Reagan's doing. And they're saying, oh, it's because he's an actor. That's why he's powerful. So, again, uh, ideas about what is valuable and what is powerful, they're shifting at this time. Um, and overwhelmingly, when people are looking at Reagan and they're looking at the memory of the 1960 election, it's that idea of entertainment and celebrity and showbiz politics that's really coming to the surface. Which I, I think is something fascinating because when, when I look at that and you look at really by the X's and O's what Kennedy and Reagan did, it's really, to me, foolhardy to say that it's about celebrity because really it's about communication. If there's one thing that celebrity mm -hmm. and Hollywood is good at is getting across the message as simply as possible. It's like as simple as looking at a movie poster, you know, okay, our hero has a gun and he's frowning. He's out for revenge, right? You just know that mm -hmm. immediately. And that's something that if you really look at the transformation of politics, it's the development of a retail narrative. And once you have to start going out to the public and not just wheeling and dealing at the convention for 72 hours, uh, that mm -hmm. becomes more and more necessary. And you're absolutely right. I guess the ultimate culmination of this road is Ronald Reagan in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But it's, it's interesting, again, thinking about what people are valuing and party politics uh, during the 1960s. Because as you mentioned, this style you know, go, it revolves around dramatic changes in party politics. It involves yeah. going to the primary trail, uh, using media, bringing in voters, many of them independent voters, into determining who's going to be the presidential nomination. It's a dramatic shift of party politics from an earlier era where it was all behind the scenes, wheeling and dealing. You know, party bosses uh, had so much authority. Uh, and so it's a breakdown of that. And 
And so the, the shifting um, ideas about what is going to win elections that comes out in the 1960s, that's really key here. And there are a lot of party documents uh, that I've looked at, in, uh, especially in the Republican Party, because the Republican Party is studying the TV age, because they think that they've gotten behind uh, with Kennedy's success in 1960, and they're grappling with what, what can we do to try to win back the, the White House during the 1960s, and they're studying Ronald Reagan, and they're saying his authority comes not because he's saying anything that's newsworthy, but he's making it worthy of the news. And, and so, again, really studying that process. Uh, and then they're thinking that this is something we need to bring into the Republican Party. And so how are we going to do that? We're going to draw in entertainers. Uh, we're going to draw, you know, make people like Ronald Reagan key to how we restructure the party. So uh, Reagan's run, I guess, is, is, is a great way for us to kind of hit, hit a touchstone here that from the point that performers begin to get involved in politics, is it safe to say that from the very beginning to the, the the moment that we are speaking now, that traditionally, or at least by the majority, they have been advocates of liberal causes? That is incorrect. Incorrect. Okay, <laughs> then please go ahead. I, I think uh, I think that the the biggest myth about Hollywood is that it's this bastion of liberalism. And it's always been that way. Uh, in fact, uh, Hollywood's involvement in politics is very much a bipartisan tradition. It started with the Republican Party um, during FDR uh, and his administration. There was overwhelmingly a really great connection that developed between figures like Jack Warner and you know Humphrey Bogart, as I mentioned, um, and, and his administration. But then actually from the, the mid-1940s uh, throughout the 1950s, there's, a, there's a, a really powerful connection that develops between Hollywood Republicans and Dwight Eisenhower's administration. Uh, George Murphy, an actor and former president of the Screen Actors Guild, uh, becomes the TV advisor to uh, Dwight Eisenhower and teaches him how to adapt to the camera. Uh, a variety of other figures, uh, Jack Warner actually shift from being a New Deal Democrat uh, to being a really powerful Eisenhower supporter in the 1950s. And many Hollywood Republicans become adamant Cold Warriors. Uh, again, it was really controversial to associate with liberal causes in uh, the 1940s and the 1950s with the investigation into uh, communism in the motion picture industry. But it was very lucrative, uh, both personally and professionally, to become involved in anti-communism, to become ambassadors of democracy, sell Hollywood films at a global level, and cultivate this great relationship with other Cold Warriors um, in the Eisenhower administration. So what you actually see more broadly in the history of Hollywood and politics is that there's a pendulum that really swings. Ah. And while one while one party cultivates a great relationship with Hollywood, the other one is studying what they're doing and trying to think how they can emulate and perhaps surpass the innovations and in, uh, in communication that are developing because of that relationship. So let's move into the modern era. Uh, uh, what have you seen in terms of evolution of the relationship between Hollywood and politics over the last, let's say, you know, 15, 20 years? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think that, you know, Hollywood has become more vocally uh, a prominent player in the Democratic Party. You see that with uh, the Clinton administration um, and the Obama administration. And, and one of the things that's really key here is you see Hollywood a key figure in how they fundraise. And, and, so, and that's something that actually goes back to John F. Kennedy. Uh, and he created this thing called the President's Club. Uh, and that really brought in entertainers to be these headliners for very expensive dinners and galas uh, that would raise money for the very expensive campaigns that resulted because of the collaboration with Hollywood. Uh, so I think that that's one of the things that has persisted uh, up until the, the contemporary um, period that Hollywood uh, especially the Hollywood left, has become a really important fundraising entity uh, for the Democratic Party. I mean, certainly so, right? I mean, if you look at the top fundraisers now, at least the ones that are drawing big checks, uh, you know, the, the Kamala Harris's and Pete Buttigieg's, they're, they're in L.A. Absolutely. all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And again, this goes uh, back to uh, to the Kennedy administration as well. But it, that's become even more powerful. And in many ways, I think that's why uh, Hollywood is known um, as this supporter of left-wing candidates, um, the Democratic Party, and also, you know, liberal causes as well. Because uh, they've been key in fundraising for more um, liberal issues. Uh, this also goes back to civil rights. Uh, Hollywood was a key fundraiser in raising money and awareness for civil rights as well. So those ties that you see very prominently on display today, again, are rooted in some of the relationships uh, that go back a half a century. So let's focus on our current president, Donald Trump, obviously <laughs> a celebrity in his own right, without question. Uh, and yet, as he runs, becomes reviled by uh, much of the, the modern uh, mm -hmm. Hollywood left. Uh, it, it becomes cause celebrité itself to trash Donald Trump. Uh, John Bon Jovi mm -hmm. and Lady Gaga are holding Hillary Clinton's hands aloft at the end of the 2016 election, and yet he wins. So is, mm -hmm. is Donald Trump a sign that celebrity in politics is stronger than ever or that it's waning? I, I think that it's both. Uh, I think that celebrity in politics is uh, stronger than ever. Uh, but celebrity has changed. And the, 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 the role that celebrities play, who is a celebrity, has become much more democratized over the course of the 20th century. You know, as we, as we talked about uh, with movies playing such a powerful role in the lives of individuals in the 1930s and the 1940s, there weren't very many movie stars. Uh, and so celebrity was something that, that meant that you had an entire publicity team um, in Hollywood studios cultivating these images of their stars, selecting which actor is going to be the one that they give this Hollywood dream machine treatment uh, because they want to sell a particular film. Um, the studio system breaks down. Uh, they had a lot of, the studios had a lot of control over the public image of stars in the 1930s and the 1940s, which is why studio executives played such a powerful role 
in the mobile, the political mobilization of the industry. But that starts to break down in the 1950s and the 1960s as celebrities uh, get agents and they get more control over their crafting their own individual image and negotiating their contracts. Celebrities become more powerful. Um, of course, you have the new mediums that emerge, reality television, cable television. Um, uh, now we have social media. So there are so many more celebrities. Uh, and so it becomes more about an individual brand rather than you have a celebrity because you have these, uh, these talents in terms of acting. And so, again, what celebrity means uh, really has transformed over the course of the 20th century. Well. I'll tell you what, this is awesome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to uh, uh, please uh, encourage everybody. Uh, sorry, Catherine Kramer Brownell, uh, please go get her book, Showbiz Politics, Hollywood and American Political Life. You should follow her, Catherine, that is Catherine with a Y, Brownell on Twitter. Uh, uh, this is great. Uh, thank you, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to, to chat with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Politics! All right, this is something that I've been working on for a little bit. Or at least I'm not working on it. I want to make it seem like I put a ton of research into this because I didn't. But something that I've been uh, just noodling on. And that is thinking about must-win states. Like, which are make-or-break states for each candidate in the first, the crucial first four primaries. So historically, let's understand what these mean. Iowa obviously is the first, the first caucus. Week later, it's New Hampshire, then Nevada, then South Carolina. They happen in fairly quick succession, which means that the momentum that comes from stuff like that can shift the race very quickly. And so it is with that that I will tell you, I have nobody with a must-win state in South Carolina. I don't believe that you can lose three states in a row and then make it up in South Carolina. And that obviously is kind of a dig at Joe Biden. We'll get to him in a second. That also means that I don't believe that Michael Bloomberg has a chance to be president because he has decided to skip all four early states if he indeed runs. So I'm... I'm I'm selling on Bloomberg. <laughs> All right, and it is with that we begin with Iowa. Now, Iowa is going to be a must-win state for the most amount of candidates. This is for two reasons. Number one, Iowa is a winnable state for upstart candidates, people that are not necessarily dominating the world. In terms of national polls, you can win Iowa. Iowa is finicky. Iowa is provincial. They love it when you spend a lot of time in Iowa, which is what a lot of smaller candidates do. However, you can make the argument that Iowa is far more predictive for the Democratic Party than it is the Republican Party. Let me read you the last few winners in Iowa. Jimmy Carter, Walter Mondale, Al Gore, John Kerry, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton. All went on to be the nominee or the president of the United States. The only two nominees that did not win in Iowa, in 92, Bill Clinton didn't win. 
got blown out by Tom Harkin, who was a local boy. And Michael Dukakis didn't win in 1988. He lost to Dick Gephardt. On the Republican side, here are just the last three Iowa winners. Mike Huckabee, Rick Santorum, Ted Cruz, none of whom got the nomination. So, Iowa means something to Democrats. So here is my list of the candidates that need it the most. And by the way, I am picking from candidates that, by and large, are qualifying for the December debate. So, sorry, Cory Booker, you ain't on this list. First, the long shots. Yang and Gabbard. They're not polling particularly strong in Iowa, but to quote Rage Against the Machine and Zach De La Roca, it has to start somewhere. It has to start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now? I have no particular reason to think that they have any more of a chance to win Iowa than Zach De La Roca's solo album showing up, but this has got to be it. If it's going to happen, it happens here. All right, Amy Klobuchar. She's another one where it's like she's not particularly polling well in Iowa, but she kind of has to fall into this bucket. Here are the real serious candidates, though. Kamala Harris. She had a good debate. If she can rebound a little bit, maybe catch some of those John McCain, I fired my entire staff and found the clarity of my campaign kind of stories. She reshifted all of her focus to Iowa. If she doesn't win here, it's a wrap. Kamala Harris, if she does not drop out before Iowa, which considering she made the December debate, I don't think she will, unless she doesn't make the January debate or she runs out of money. But it seems like she has has put all of her chips in this basket. So she's a big candidate for me on like an Iowa night dropout if she loses. So obviously she has to win. Tom Steyer. Tom Steyer has spent $5 million in the state of Iowa alone. All right, $5 million in the state of Iowa alone just on television ads. He effectively lived in Iowa before he decided not to run, before he decided to run, and therefore it is a must win for him. If he's going to do it, it's going to happen here. But the biggest one, Mayor Pete. By all those men and women who are not content to settle for the world as it is, who have the courage to remake the world as it should be. That is what we started here in Iowa, and that is the message we can now carry to New Hampshire and beyond. The same message we had when we were up and when we were down. The one that can change this country brick by brick, block by block, Calisand by careless hand. In this election, we are ready to believe again. Thank you, I Look, it's no secret that Mayor Pete has to hope that he has the same magic that Obama had in Iowa, especially because right now he's leading. If he cannot maintain that lead, if he cannot beat back anybody from this point, then he is going to have a problem. But if he can win Iowa, that means something. Again, it's far more predictive on the Democratic side than it is the Republican side, and he will be a media sensation. Not just a promising guy. You're going to start to see 
Mayor Pete inevitability whispers. If he can win Iowa, it's his path to the White House. Not to say he's guaranteed to get there if he does win Iowa, but he's guaranteed to not get there if he doesn't. A week later, New Hampshire. This is where three people need to win. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Deval Patrick. I'm throwing Deval Patrick into here because he's a former governor of Massachusetts. If he wants to microwave his way into this race, it's through New Hampshire. Why Elizabeth Warren? Well, it is my opinion that when it comes to the primaries, if it happens once, it's a thing. If it happens twice, it's a trend. If Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, both of whom come from the region of New Hampshire, can't win a home state primary, it's going to be a problem. So I will say that this might be where we find out which progressive survives. Only one person can win. You know, if, if one of them comes really, really close, then maybe. Like, if it's like a a close first and second. But if Biden wins New Hampshire, I think that is a major problem for Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. Which brings us to Nevada. I believe that Joe Biden, if Joe Biden is going to be in a scenario where he loses Iowa, and right now the polling seems to indicate that he's going to lose it bad. Like, he's going to come in third or fourth. That's a bad start in a predictive caucus for the the national front runner. And he loses in New Hampshire. In my opinion, that kind of screws his campaign. I just don't know if you can come back. But if you are to come back from that, here's how you do it. You win back-to-back races. You win a caucus in Nevada. You win a primary in South Carolina. Right now, he is the prohibitive favorite in South Carolina. I think he might win in South Carolina even if he loses all three states, but I just don't know if his candidacy is ever the same. Not because he's significantly damaged. It's that somebody else will be significantly stronger. Really, the only way that I could see him coming out of South Carolina strong is if we're like totally randomizing the results in the previous three. So let's say Mayor Pete blows everybody out in Iowa and then Warren blows everybody out in New Hampshire and then Bernie blows everybody out in Nevada and now Biden blows everybody out in South Carolina and nobody's really close in the other states. But that's like fan fiction. I can't imagine that happening. So I believe right now Biden is running in the lead in Nevada. His polling averages in Nevada, according to Real Clear Politics, has him up by nine points. That is trending downward with Sanders and Warren hot on his heels. But I believe that Nevada is a must win for Joe Biden. I don't think he can get into New Hampshire without a W on his record. Politics! And that'll wrap us up for today and this week. Thank you 
to everybody who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Next week, in this feed, you guys will get the first pre-released episode of my brand new historical series, Raise the Dead, focusing on the 1960 election and the lessons that we didn't learn leading into 2016. I'm super proud of it. I'm very excited for you guys to listen to it. That comes out Tuesday. You guys get a new episode of PX3, of of, of my political content, five days next week if you're at the $3 level. So head on over there right now. Take politics seriously. I want to thank our Titanic $10 tier, Squids Mixtape, Jaime, Ryan, Adam, Jonathan, D-Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, and Brad. Thank you guys. Reminder, you can email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Sign up for my newsletter. It's the free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Until next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young reminding you that politics has three names and some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics and still more talk about politics, but this is the only show that talks about all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>